Well, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you in this morning. Uh, we are down to the last two weekends of our series walking through verse by verse through the book of Habakkuk. And so last week, I, I kind of bragged that we were spending time walking through 16 verses. That's, that's generally more than we do on a Sunday morning, especially lately. And this week I got uh, what was coming to me because we have two verses that uh, we're going to cover this morning. But I think you'll find that those two verses are rich uh, with God's truth. And so here's just a little preview about where we're going to go the rest of this fall. So we've got two weekends left, this and one more walking through Habakkuk. And then we'll spend time uh, the next four weeks walking through this idea of stewardship. And every time we talk about stewardship, I know everybody's minds go to just money. But what we need to understand is that as stewards of God's gift, this is encompassing of our lives as a whole. So we're going to spend four weeks walking through this idea of stewardship. How do we steward this life and the gifts that God has given us in it well for the glory of God? And then after that, uh, we're going to spend eight weeks walking through Revelation 1 through 3. We're going to spend time walking through each of the seven letters to the seven churches. And I think what you'll find is that uh, maybe Revelation isn't exactly what you've been told. If you've never walked through this before, I think that you'll find that, that there is so much more than what maybe you've given it credit for. And so we're going to spend eight weeks walking through that, and that's going to take us to December, which is crazy. And so we are, we are moving fast. But as we stand in the last two weeks of Habakkuk, this is the moment when everything really comes together. So let me, let me just let me catch you up to where we've been. If you haven't been here, you've missed a few weeks, let me summarize where the book of Habakkuk has gone so you understand why what we talk about today is so profound. So the question hanging over really the head of the whole book, as introduced by Habakkuk at the very beginning, is what do you do when what you know about God and what you see in the world don't seem to measure up? You may be having these questions today. God, I know this is who you've told me you are, and yet I look at the world around me, and it seems to communicate a different story. What do you do when these two things don't seem to measure up? Think about where we've been as a whole in this book. At the hands of King Jehoiakim, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, you remember at this time there are two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, They've fallen away from this spiritual revival that they had experienced under the reign of King Josiah. So from one king to the next, Habakkuk has lived through both, and he says, what has changed? What's happened to us as a people? And so he introduces this storyline to us by asking these questions of God, and it starts with, God, how long? How long am I going to call for help? And you don't answer. How long am I going to ask you to do something, to intervene in the situation, and it seems like you're sitting on your hands and allowing it to happen? So he informs the Lord as though the Lord doesn't know. Here's what's taking place among our people. All I see as I look out is, is violence, is sin, is injustice, and wickedness. 
And the people that you've given your law to are so wicked, so sinful, that even the good law that you've given us to show us this is the way you're to live is being perverted because we are a sinful people. God, when will you intervene? What's God's response? Regardless of whether you see it or feel it in a moment, I am working and I am in control. So he tells Habakkuk, he says, I'm doing something that if you knew what I know, you would stand and be amazed. Because I'm raising up the Babylonians, a people that Habakkuk would have been well familiar with at this point in his life. I'm raising up the Babylonians, this, this feared and dreaded people. So you want to know how long until I do something? Well, it's coming. How long am I going to let wickedness and sin among my people go on? Not too long. Because I'm using the Babylonians to bring you to your knees. And, and, and don't miss this. This is not an act of evil on God's part. In fact, this is an act of extreme grace and mercy. I'm using this desperate situation to bring you back to me. And if it means costing you everything, but you have me, you have everything you need. So in God's grace and his mercy and his judgment, he brings the Babylonians. And here's how this ends. He, he says, they are a feared and dreaded people among the people of the world. And he says... In verse 11 of chapter 1, he says, But they will be held guilty. Why is this significant to us? Well, I want you to, to zoom out for a moment and think of a courtroom setting. In a courtroom setting, when, when sentencing or the judgment comes down, who is in control? The one being sentenced or the one that is doing the sentencing? The point of this is though they're dreaded, though they're feared among all the other nations, I'm the one to be feared and dreaded. In other words, I'm the one that is controlling everything. I'm the one that is overall. If you're going to submit to someone, let it not be the Babylonians. It should be me. And Habakkuk replies to this, but from a limited perspective. He says, but why would you punish Judah's wickedness with the people that are more wicked than them? Habakkuk, not realizing he's gotten exactly what he asked God for. How long until you intervene? Now he's saying, well, why would you use these people? You, God, are, are allowing them to devour the nations of the earth, and yet, God, here's the problem. They don't even acknowledge you. That all of this conquest that, that you're allowing, they're not acknowledging that it's been given by you. In fact, God, what it's doing is it's, it's only serving to boost this worship of themselves. So in all the blessing that you've given them, they don't even realize it. They think it's because of them. And all that's doing is in their mind puffing themselves up as the gods that they believe themselves to be. And God's response to this is Habakkuk. Everything is happening according to my plans and according to my purposes. 
So Habakkuk asks the question. He says, well, how long are you going to, how long are you going to let evil thrive? Both in, in us and in the Babylonians. How long will you let this go on? And he, he reminds them there's a day coming where evil has its day. Where evil is, is vanquished. There is no more. And he says in chapter 2, verse 3, though it lingers, wait for it. In other words, although it doesn't happen as quickly as you think it should, it is happening exactly according to my plan. And this is good news for you and I. That the plans of God operate according to the timing of God. You and I want the plans of God, but we, we like it in my timing. And the reality of what we've seen through this book is that God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is orchestrating all of history to come to a certain conclusion, and it is operating exactly according to his purpose and his timing. And it's good news for us. So as to Habakkuk's complaint as to the evil of the Babylonian, God's response is, Babylon's going to have its day. Evil will have its day, and it's going to be destroyed. He knows the Babylonians worship themselves. He knows the lives that they live only seek evil. He knows that their worth and their identity has been crafted around what they have and what they can obtain. And the promise of Scripture is that one day it's going to come crashing down on their heads. I think this is a sobering reminder for us. At least it should be. But there is a day coming and it is rapidly approaching where all will acknowledge God as the one true God. And the reality is, is we can either do that now or when it's too late. But everyone will acknowledge that God is the one true God. So the question is, knowing, knowing all of this, knowing everywhere that the book of Habakkuk has taken us over the last few weeks, what do you do with all of this? Because the principles still apply to you and I today. God is in control. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of, of what pain or, or, or whatever you've experienced in your life, God is in control and is using that for his glory. You may not see it yet, but there is a day where it's coming. And the question is, what do you do with that? What do you do with that in the waiting? What do you do in the moments that are hard? What do you do in the pain? This is the conclusion that Habakkuk comes to as well. So as we open up chapter 3, the last chapter of Habakkuk, we're going to focus on the first two verses. So chapter 3, verse 1 says this, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shijinoth. Remember, I told you the key to seeing like, seeming like you know what these words, how they're actually pronounced, is just flying through them. But I think that's close. The point of all this, you only see it one other time in the Old Testament. You see it at the beginning of Psalm chapter 7. And it's, it's usually used to denote a, a musical element. And in fact, you see this clue at the very end of chapter 3. You see that this is a song for stringed instrument, instruments. So the point of this is knowing what he knows. Seeing God's purpose laid out. No, he doesn't know the timing, doesn't know when. He knows this is what God is doing. He is active. He is all-knowing. He is above all. Habakkuk's response is to praise. His response is to sing. It's an indication that, that this 
chapter of Habakkuk is meant to be sung. It won't be today, but it's meant to. It's a song of worship. And this is the moment where you see the tone of the letter shift. What started out in, at the very beginning as argumentative and a little accusatory on Habakkuk's part has shifted to praise. And, and here's the key to this. Does Habakkuk have all the answers now? No. He's seen glimpses of what God is doing, but he doesn't know the entire picture. Does he understand everything that God is doing and why? No. Do questions still linger? Absolutely. And yet there's an acknowledgement. There is a clear recognition by Habakkuk at the beginning of this chapter that says, God, you are the Holy One. So the uncertainty of circumstances is overshadowed by the certainty of who's in control of those circumstances. This is the, the, the moment that Habakkuk realizes, I, I don't see it all. I, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I, it wouldn't be what I would choose. But I trust in the one who knows. Have you come to this have you reached this level of trust in the Lord God I don't understand why you do what you do I don't understand why this is happening in my life but I do trust that when your word says you're working all things out for the good of those who love you even though it doesn't feel good in the moment I believe that that's where it ultimately ends is this the level of trust that we have So as he jumps to the next verse, we're going to break this up into two. So the first part of Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2 says this. It says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Habakkuk has heard the stories of old of God protecting, preserving the people of Israel. He's heard the promises, some that have come to fruition, some that are still far out. But he comes to this conclusion in the middle of the uncertainty. He says, God, I recognize that you and I, we're not the same. Church, this is the point we have to come to. When we begin to equate ourselves with God, it's then when we start to question even more the things that God does. We, we say the same things. Maybe, maybe we don't say them. We think the same things as Habakkuk. God, why would you choose this? Why are you doing this? Now, I'm not asking you for a blind trust. What I'm asking you is to come to the same conclusion that Habakkuk does. This is not a blind faith that Habakkuk has. He says, God, I, I know the things that you've done. I know the good works that you've done for your people. I know how you've protected us. I know how time and time again you've redeemed and restored us. And God, because of that, I'm going I'm to look back to that. And I'm going to remember that in the middle 
of this uncertainty. So he says, Lord, I've, I've heard of your fame. And I stand in awe of your deeds. I think it's important to note at this point, nothing has changed. The Babylonians are still coming. They're still bringing judgment on Judah. Nothing has changed in the circumstances. What has changed is Habakkuk's perspective on who God is. So let me ask you the question. What do you base your confession of the goodness of God on? I want to tell you the story of a man named Alan Gardner. Alan Gardner was a a man born and and died in the 1800s. He was a British naval officer for the first part of his life. Uh, In 1823, Alan married his wife, Julia. And in 1826, a man who had had a distinguished British naval officer career suddenly found himself unable to get another appointment. So a man who had devoted his life to his country now found that his country had seemingly rejected him. So in 1826, out of work, confused as to the direction of his life, Alan heads home with his wife, Julia, and it's during the next nine years that Alan and Julia have several kids, many of which wouldn't live to see adulthood. A couple died early on, a couple died later on in childhood. This is a family who has experienced immense pain, unimaginable pain. And to compound that, in 1834, Julia breathes her last. It's at this moment that Alan, a believer in Christ, feels like the Lord is calling him to be a missionary. He spends the next several years bouncing around with different groups, traveling to Africa, traveling to South America, and all the while he's never able to actually find any traction. It seems like every door that God has seemingly opened closes before he can walk through it. No ministry success, so to speak. In the next 16 years, of Alan's life were marked by seemingly one failure after another. Hostile people, a lack of support, attacks from opposing religious groups, and yet, in the midst of all the pain, of all the suffering, Gardner perseveres. And in 1851, Alan and a group of other missionaries set sail for Patagonia, Uh, It's an area in southern South America at the tip of Argentina and Chile. In December of 1850, they land on an island just south. And what they believe to be this place where they can set up camp, a place where life can flourish, what they're met with is barren land, severe climate, 
and another hostile people. And as they scouted the landscape, as the harsh weather comes, their ship is destroyed. And they come to the realization that all of their ammunition was left on the ship. Their means of survival was destroyed along with their means of ever leaving. Gardner knew that the the reinforcement ship with supplies was a few months out, and so they spent their time continuing to try to to preach the gospel to the local peoples, continuing to try to, to build a life here. And yet one by one, the men who were unable to locate any food of significance began to die of starvation. And what we gather from Gardner's journal that was found is that he's the last survivor. One by one, his counterparts drop dead of starvation as Gardner can do nothing but watch. This is a man who has experienced an immense amount of pain, an immense amount of uncertainty, and yet the last entry into his journal, September 6th of 1851, found right next to Alan Gardner's dead body, was this. I am overwhelmed. with a sense of the goodness of God. To have that perspective. When you consider the goodness of God, what's your basis? The reality is, is for most of us, myself included, our basis of the goodness of God comes from the good things that we feel like he's given us in our lives. When life is good, the goodness of God feels tangible. When life is going well, if... We have that sense. What faith it takes... To face loss, to face pain, to face uncertainty, and to be able to see the bigger picture that though this moment hurts, it does not change the goodness of God. So I ask myself and I ask you. What's your basis for your belief in the goodness of God? The good things that he's given or a recognition of who he actually is? One will sustain you. The other will cause you to ride the wave. I'm going to take you to another moment in the Old Testament. I think I referenced this story earlier on in this series. Uh, The story of Job. Gosh, you want to see a story of of pain, of heartbreak. 
of overwhelming loss, it's, it's this. And yet, the perspective between Habakkuk, Alan Gardner, and Job are all too similar. So at the end of Job, in Job 42, this is, this is his response. Now, understand what's happened at this moment. Job has lost everything. His family's been taken from him. His possessions are no more. His health is fading fast. And he begins to ask the Lord why. And through a series of back and forth where God has established, this is who I am. And this is who you are. Here's the conclusion that Job comes to. Job 42, beginning in verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plan without knowledge? And he confesses, God, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. What is God doing in this moment where he's reminding Job, this is who I am. I've told you that I am good, that I am righteous, that I am holy, and that I do not change. And regardless if circumstances do, you need to refer back to this truth. And it's this overwhelming sense of of that that Job comes to this conclusion in verse 5. He says, my ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. At this moment, Job hasn't received everything back. In fact, circumstances are are still pretty dire for him. We see later on that, that this is given back to him. But at his most broken, he recognizes, God, you are still good. How do you do this? Well, I think what Job and Habakkuk have, have told us is that it's this continual reminding of yourself of who he is. That he is the creator, the sustainer, that he is the one that is working out his plan, that he is the one who has redeemed you and I through his son. Remember who he is. That doesn't change based on the momentary circumstances of life, no matter how painful they are. So Habakkuk ends this section that we'll look at this morning by saying, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. And in wrath, remember mercy. He says, God, would, would we be confronted with an overwhelming sense of your power, your might, and your majesty? God, would you give the people of Judah a glimpse of who you are and what you're doing? Would you remind us of what you've done in the past? Because it's going to be that that we're going to need to lean on 
as your judgment comes. And God, remember the covenant that you've made with your people. Remember that you promised us that you're going to see your plan come through us. And so God, in your wrath, remember mercy. So the plea of Habakkuk is three things. And I think it's the three that we should pray as well. God, we want to know you. I want to know who you are. I want to see you move. God, would you do something in our midst It's going to bring you and you alone glory and honor. Father, we want to see you move. And not in the way that we would conjure up, but the way that you see fit. And in all of that, he recognizes the power of God by saying, have mercy on us, Lord. It's this recognition from Habakkuk that that even he deserves the coming wrath of God. Right, we've, we've intertwined the book of Habakkuk with some things that Paul has said in the New Testament, and he reminds us in Romans chapter 3, there's, there's no one good. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So we come to this recognition that God is good, that He is holy, that He is sovereign and overall, and yet we also come to this realization that I am worthy of His wrath. And it's when we come to this point that we can step back and recognize the mercy that was on display on the cross. I mean, and I mean this not rhetorically, I mean this seriously. Do you recognize that that should have been you? Do I recognize that that should be me? I stand at the foot of the cross and I I don't understand it. But what I do understand is that I don't deserve it. What I do understand is I'm not worthy even now to receive that, and yet God has given me this this gift of grace and mercy in that He has taken my sins and He's given me the Holy Spirit, not so I just stay in my sins and, and can continue on. Now I can live the life that Christ has called me to because it's Him in me. And I step back and I, I see all of that. And it should be the point that you come to as well. God, why me? How how do you use me? Why would you save me? And so we ask the same things of Habakkuk. God, I want to know you. I want want the fear of the Lord. I want to see Him as much as I can fathom for who He actually is. And I want that to dictate my life. 
I want to see God move. What if we asked him this? Humbly, but genuinely. God, do something at Redbrush Christian Church that we would not believe, even if you told us. When's the last time you and I have prayed that? God, transform our hearts. Bring people into our midst, not not just to be church attenders, but to be people transformed by the gospel that, that if we knew, we wouldn't believe it. When's the last time you've prayed that? And in all of this, God, have mercy on us because you stand alone. Father, may this be said of us. Lord, as we've looked at your word through Habakkuk, I'm confronted with as much as I can fathom of who you are. You are the one who controls nations. You're the one who's told creation this is your purpose. You're the one who's told the waters this is as far as you can go. There is nothing that has slipped your view including my sin. So Lord, I pray that I I would come to the realization of who I am apart from Christ. That in the face of your goodness, that in the face of your mercy on me, so often turn the other way. So God, it's that realization that I am so thankful for your son. The Savior who took my place. The Savior who your wrath was poured fully and completely on. God, I look back and I I recognize that should have been me. God, it is a testament to your goodness and your mercy. And yet, God, you've reminded us through the pages of Habakkuk that evil will end. That there is a day coming where unrepentant sin will be punished. Because you are a holy God and you can't tolerate sin forever. So God, for those of us who believe, for those who have been redeemed fully and completely because of you, 
God, would you give us the boldness to carry out the simple commission that you've given us to go and make disciples, to share the good news of the gospel, but remind them there's a day coming that you can no longer stand by and leave all of evil unpunished. And God, in the middle of that, we see the cross. That's where life is found. God, would you, through your spirit, give us the boldness to be ambassadors for that. So God, we ask, we ask the same of Habakkuk. We want to know you. We want to see you move. Father, remember mercy on us. It's in your name that we pray these things.